All right, Jacob was the first. I guess I'll be the stu- second. Students, welcome back. So glad you were here. You bring so much energy. We love having you back, worshiping with you. This semester, we're going to study the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible in front of you, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, is where we will begin this morning. This summer, Netflix reached 65.6 million subscribers. Is that a whoop? All right. Well, I get, I'm, one, I'm one of them. Yeah, I'm one of those 65.6 million subscribers. And did you know that uh, among our group of subscribers, that on a monthly basis, we watch 10 billion hours of video? Just let that sink in for a minute, okay? Every month, Netflix subscribers, not talking about other subscriptions, just Netflix subscribers watch 10 billion hours of video. We stream 10 billion hours every month of video. That's 10 billion wasted hours, right? <laughs> 10 billion, can you imagine? What an enormous number. It's hard to even wrap your mind around, right? And of those 65.6 million subscribers, 60% admit that they are binge watchers, right? Which means... When you get into a series, you don't just watch one episode, you watch two or three or four or five at a time. You might stay up all night so you can see the entire year of a series of episodes. And again, I confess, I, I've done that because I get it. I get it. You know, I hate watching a series on TV because you watch one episode, you get to the end of the episode and it is to be continued, right? And so then you have to wait an entire week to find out how the story's going to go. And then you get to the next week and it's to be continued. You get to the end of the season and it's to be continued. You got to wait all summer long until October and they pick up the storyline again. That drives me crazy. I I hate that. So I I understand that whole phenomenon of binge watching. I don't want to hear anybody say to me to be continued. Now, if you happen to be living in the first century and you stumbled upon the gospel of Luke, if you read through that gospel, you would get to the end and that is exactly the sensation you would have to be continued. What? What's next, Luke? Right, okay, Jesus is born and he lived for 33 years and he walked around and he preached and he did miracles and then he was rejected by his people. He was crucified, buried, he rose from the dead. He said to his disciples, go unto all the nations to be continued. <laughs> but then what? Well, if you're fortunate enough to stumble upon a copy of his volume 2, the book of Acts. You would read through that and you'd get to the end and you'd say, what? Well, then what? To be continued, right? The church is born in the book of Acts and the apostles begin to take the gospel out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And at the very end, Paul is in Rome. He's in prison, but he's free to preach the gospel and he's preaching and he's preaching and he's preaching. And, and then what? So as we study the book of Acts, you need to keep in mind that Acts is not simply a history of the birth and the explosion of the gospel message through the church. The story of the book of Acts is the story of the church. The story of the book of Acts, therefore, is our story. Because we are the church. And that story is still being written. The every day God is writing your life into the chapters of the story of the church. This is our story. And so what I want you to think about this morning is simply this. How will your chapter read? I'm asking myself, how will my chapter read? Will people read my chapter and they'll say, oh, I get it. I see how that fits in the bigger story. 
of what God is doing on earth? Or will they scratch their heads and say, so what was the point of that chapter? Will they read your chapter? Will they read my chapter and say, you know, that's an inspiring chapter. That chapter really reminds me how I should live and what I should live for. I want to read that chapter again. How will your chapter read? Because Acts is not simply a story about the apostles' lives. It is our story because it's the story of the church and we are the church. And God is continuously writing that story and he's writing our lives into that story. So I want us to begin as we read the book of Acts to see ourselves in these pages. Let's begin the story in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The first account I composed, that is, the Gospel of Luke. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, By many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of for me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So what is the story about? Well, in the broadest terms, the story is about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, Jesus talked to them about The kingdom of God. Now, there are some conversations in the Bible where I say to myself, man, I wish I had been there, right? When Moses walks into the tent of meeting, pulls back the veil, sees God face to face in some form, and they talk, and nobody else gets to hear that. I go, man, I wish I could have been there. That's why Joshua sat at the tent going, what? What? I want to hear some of that. Or when Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're just talking with Jesus. Like, disciples, how can you sleep through that? Or when John has a vision and thunders speak from heaven and he's about to write it down and another voice says, don't write that down. I want to know what he just heard, right? I want to know what did they talk about for those 40 days? Luke just says kind of cryptically it's about the kingdom of God. So what do we know about the kingdom of God? Kingdom of God is an enormously significant subject. Maybe you could say the subject of the Bible. So what do we know? few things. First of all, we know that the kingdom of God is something that is universal. It is everywhere because God created everything. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the heavens, the stars, everything. And so everything that's created is from the hand of God and under the rule of God. It says in Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. God's kingdom is universal. Everything is under his reign. Second, his kingdom is redemptive. He made all things and then he put certain creatures made in his image into his creation and commissioned them to rule and reign to exercise authority on his behalf over all of creation, but they rebelled against him. 
And so God's story is this. He's constantly breaking into the human story, into human history, to move men and women back to the place where they can be in line with his kingdom and with his priorities and with his values. And so kingdom work is always redemptive work. God's work is always redemptive work, always bringing men and women back into right relationship with him and his kingdom. So the kingdom of God is always something that is redemptive. Third, the kingdom of God is political, meaning it's a, it's a rule and it's a reign over people, over nations. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. In fact, Israel was a form, a political form, in a sense, of the kingdom of God. They were, in God's eyes and in their own, a theocracy. God was their king. They had an earthly king, but ultimately God was their king, and they were an earthly, political, geographic manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth, or at least they were supposed to be. But Israel failed, and Israel really wasn't the ultimate form of a political kingdom of God on earth. In fact, Daniel has a vision, and in Daniel's vision, one comes and he establishes a worldwide, earthly political dominion of God over all. Daniel chapter 7. To him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. Which has a further implication. Kingdom of God is also a physical kingdom. It's a kingdom that has been and will be on earth. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, they said, teach us to pray. What should, we, what should we pray about? What should be our priorities? What really matters to God? And Jesus says, this is how I want you to pray. Say, our Father who, who art in heaven, you, you are holy. May your name be set apart. May men acknowledge that you are distinct, that you're the only true God. And may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, your, your rule is perfect in heaven. No one resists your will in heaven. May your rule and your reign come to earth in exactly the same way. Or as Peter says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because the kingdom representatives, men and women, fell and rebelled against God. They plunged all of God's creation into decay and chaos. And so when the king returns, his kingdom will set everything right even the entire physical universe. Fifth characteristic, the kingdom of God is spiritual. Yes, it is earthly. Yes, it is physical. It will be political. He will rule and reign over all nations and all kingdoms and all men. But it is spiritual. It is the invasion of God and his rule into our hearts. Men and women bend their knee to God and they say, you are sovereign. You are king. And I am not. God's spirit comes to dwell in us. And our spirit, which was separated from God, comes to life again. It's reunited with God. As Paul describes it, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Men and women, that's the the essence of the gospel. We're born into this world, separated from God, because we're born in sin. We're born part of Adam's race. And that sin that we have inherited separates us from God and causes us to continually act as sinners in this life. 
pushing ourselves in further alienation from God. But the moment that we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead, the moment we believe that, God's spirit brings our spirit back to life. That is, we're no longer separated. We are one again, we are one again with God. We are brought to spiritual life. We belong to God. And we have now entered, spiritually speaking, into the kingdom of God. We become members of the kingdom of God. So what did they talk about? We probably talked about all of this. But if you want to turn back to Luke chapter 24, we gain a little glimpse into this conversation. Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ or the Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What did they talk about? They talked about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Kings and Samuel and Judges and Joshua and Esther and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And Jesus said, do you see how all of these things are a part of the story of God? All of these things are a part of the story of God. And at the beginning of the story, men and women were in perfect relationship with me. They were in the garden. But then they had to be removed from the garden because of rebellion. And now these intervening chapters are all about me, Jesus says, they're all about moving toward me, toward me coming to live and die, be rejected, and then resurrected so that you could be reunited with God. So that someday I will return and I will reestablish God's kingdom on earth and you'll be back in the garden. That's Revelation. That's Genesis to Revelation. That's the whole story that God has continuously been writing. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension, return. All things set right. This is the gospel. And he says to the disciples, this is your story. This is your story. This is your life. This is the kingdom. And so where do we find the apostle Paul in the very last verses of the book of Acts? He's in prison. He has no freedom other than to preach. And what is he preaching? The death and the burial, and the resurrection, and the ascension, and the return, we're told he's preaching the kingdom of God. Because everything and anything that could be good in your life is a gift that comes through the kingdom of God. And men and women, this is your story. This is my story. It ends in chapter 28 of the book of Acts, and then you should write at the the bottom of that page, to be continued. To be continued through you. To be continued through the people of God. Right? Read with me again Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke says, The first account, the gospel, that I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach, well then what's the book of Acts about? Well the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach through the church. In other words, Jesus came to his disciples, whom he now calls apostles, which means sent ones. And he says, you know what? I'm going to leave, but you're going to stay. 
I gave birth to something new, a new form of the kingdom of God, a new manifestation of the kingdom of God. I gave birth to it, and now you're going to bring it to maturity. See you later. (laughs) Can you imagine how they felt? How intimidating was that? I hand you the keys of the kingdom, so to speak, right? (laughs) I brought it to birth. You bring it to maturity. I'm leaving. You stay. Go. I remember uh, intimidating moments in my life. Probably the most intimidating moment was when Tristy and I were handed a baby for the first time and they said, go, we helped you bring it to birth. Now you bring it to maturity right now. Go raise this, this human. This is your human and you get to keep this human. This human belongs to you forever. Bring this human to maturity. Make a responsible citizen for the United States of America out of this citizen. Go. And I'm thinking this is too easy. You know, literally, they do not hand you a book. Uh, We took a class, but it was a class on breathing. (laughs) No, I mean, really, I I really in that portion was kind of just in the way. I need, I need a little more help here. I'm not kidding. It was harder to adopt a cat (laughs) than to get a baby. Here is your, here's your human being. Take it. Ah, Really? We're just kids ourselves. What do we do with that? How intimidating is that? How were the disciples feeling in this moment? Well, if you look at back at the Gospels, just a few days earlier, I can tell you they were feeling fearful. Jesus was arrested and taken away, and what did they do? They ran. Even though Peter said, I'll never leave you, I'll never abandon you, I will die with you, and all, this, all the rest of them said the same thing. We're with you, Jesus. But they didn't. They ran. They're fearful. They were uh, disappointed. On the Emmaus Road, as the disciples are walking along with Jesus, they're asking, well, why are you downcast? Where are you going? What's going on? They said, we were hoping. We were hoping. We had our eyes set on something, and it just didn't happen. They're disappointed. And Jesus appeared to them, and that moved them from disappointed to doubtful. Really? I, uh, I, don't, I don't care what all the ladies say. <laughs> I'm a man. I got to see it myself. I got to touch it myself. I'm not stopping to ask directions. I can handle this, right? No, 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 no. I think the most accurate thing we can say about them now that we've moved into this period of 40 days where Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God is that they're confused. Hey, keep this in mind as we study the book of Acts. It takes time for the apostles to get it. They don't. Read with me again chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. I want you to notice three phrases that show up here in verse 6. Restore the kingdom to Israel at this time. Okay, three phrases that reveal that they just don't get it. They're still confused. Are you going to restore the kingdom? In other words, their kingdom concept is something that they had before. And what did they have before? Well, they had an earthly, political, Davidic kingdom. So that is still, even after the resurrection, that's still what they are looking for. And in a sense, uh, rightly so, right? If you want to go back and, and get the background of what's going on in their minds, read 2 Samuel chapter 7 this week. Davidic promises, David, you will have a son and he will reign on the throne in Jerusalem. 
And someday that son of yours will have a kingdom that knows no end. Or read the new covenant promises. Read Ezekiel chapter 37, very end of the chapter. The new covenant's promise that David will return and have a son and he's reigning on the throne. He's reigning from Jerusalem. He's reigning from Jerusalem over Israel, but the rule extends over all nations. And so that's what's still in their minds. To Israel, right? Or for Israel. The kingdom of God is, is for us. I promise you they are not yet thinking Go and proclaim forgiveness of sins to all the Gentile nations. They are not thinking that yet. We know that because they resisted that idea. What they're more likely thinking is the vindication of Israel because Israel has gotten, gotten beaten up and pummeled and ruled over by other nations for centuries. And now we are expecting when the kingdom comes that we'll be vindicated in front of all the nations. That's what's in their mind. And is it going to happen now? How about now, Lord? How about now? We're ready. We're ready right now. And I want you to notice Jesus doesn't say, you've got it all wrong. He just says, don't worry about the timing. Because someday Jesus will return. We call it his second coming. From the Old Testament scriptures, this was a mystery. Jews read their Bible and they saw one coming. Messiah would come and he would accomplish everything in that one return. But Jesus came and he came first to pay the penalty of sins and remove that debt. And then he promised I'll come a second time. And maybe from the Old Testament you couldn't see that these are actually two comings. But he pulls them apart and he says, yeah, I came the first time. And I accomplished God's will the first time, but then I'm going to ascend on high, I'll return. But in the interim, there is a mystery form of the kingdom and it is called the church. This is you. This is your story. And I promise you at this moment in time, the apostles just (laughs) didn't get it. They are still confused. They're still confused. And Jesus says to them, you'll get it. And you need to get it because you are the plan. Men and women, we are the plan. To be continued through the people of God. Jesus could return at any moment. He could rescue the church and take us out of all of this mess. But he said, no, I'm going to leave you right now because you are the plan. The disciples are still probably fearful and doubtful a bit and confused and disoriented. And so he makes them a promise. The promise is the Spirit. Verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power. By the Spirit's power, You will accomplish what I've called you to do. So where did Jesus make this promise? Well, Jesus is first referring back to Joel chapter 2. Which is one of the reasons the disciples think the kingdom is going to come right now. Because the mark of the return of Messiah to establish the kingdom of God is the coming of the Spirit. Joel chapter 2. John the Baptist promises as well. He said, I'm going to put you down under the water, but there's a greater one coming and he's going to pour out his Spirit upon you. Then Jesus, right before he was crucified... John 14, 15, and 16 kept promising them, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit will come. Chapter 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is actually to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Helper is the Spirit. 
And the Spirit is power. Luke chapter 24. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Same word in Acts chapter 1. Power. It's the Greek word dunamis, from which we get dynamite. The explosive power of the Spirit of God. It's interesting, back in the 1300s, John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English. He took the Greek text and he translated it into an English text so the people could read the Word of God. When he came to the word for the Spirit, the name paraclete, he translated that Greek word paraclete as comforter. And when I hear the word comforter, I think a big thick blanket that you lay under, right, on a cold day. That's a comforter to me, right? But that's not what Wycliffe was trying to communicate. Uh, The Latin word, that's the root of comfort, is from the word fortis, which means what? Strength. And a prefix which intensifies it, which means much strength. The Spirit is our comforter. The Spirit is the source of much strength. That's why the Spirit of God was poured out upon the people of God, to give them much strength. Why do we experience less power of the Spirit than we would want to experience? Okay, well, actually, let me back up. Does anyone here say, no, 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 God, I got enough? (laughs) Does anybody say that? No, no more, please. I'm way too powerful as it is, right? Does anybody say that? I don't say that. Say, man, I need more. I really need more of that. Why don't we experience more of that? I believe one reason is this. Because we think of the Holy Spirit primarily, if not exclusively, as the tool for personal sanctification. Follow me on this. We think of the Spirit primarily, if not exclusively, as the tool for my personal sanctification. Now, he is that, right? The fruit of the Spirit is character change. It's love and joy and peace and patience. It's a transformation of my character. The Spirit does that. But the reason that the Spirit was poured out upon the people of God in the book of Acts was so that they would have courage and strength and power to do what? To stand up for Jesus in a hostile culture that doesn't want to hear about Jesus. And in the process of obeying this fundamental imperative from God, their lives were transformed, their character was transformed. They were drawing upon the power of the Spirit to obey God, to be witnesses to all of the nations. And in that process of obedience, God transformed their character from fearful and doubtful and discouraged into courageous, bold, obedient, holy people. The Spirit, men and women, is given to us for power. He is our comforter, much strength. You know, it has been uh, observed that people's greatest fear is actually not death, but public speaking. (laughs) Not death, but public speaking. Can you imagine? I'd rather die. (laughs) That's what people are saying in their minds. Really? Well, for Christians... There's a particular form of public speaking that is our greatest fear. Public speaking about Jesus. That's why, men and women, we have the Spirit of God. There are lots of messages that we receive that we like to pass on, aren't there? Every app on your phone, every website 
has a button. Retweet. Share it. And if you're under 40, you do that every day. Share, 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 share. Tweet, 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 tweet. Oh, that's the best. Boom, 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 right? You're sharing all, you're sharing all kinds of messages all of the time. I know you are. Because I am. I, I understand that. Right? There are messages for us that are so very easy to share. You know the most uh, commonly shared message? A picture of myself. <laughs> a selfie. Right? You can now even buy a, a stick that gets the perspective a little bit better of what you are doing, which is so wonderful, right? A selfie, that's the most commonly shared thing, which actually I was thinking, um, kind of wanted to capture this moment here. Hold on. There we go. Okay, smile real big here. All right, ready? Here, wait a second. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, I'm going to post that this afternoon. I, it's easy to talk about me. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about me. Let's talk about me. Let's look at me. Let's look at more pictures of me. <laughs> Let's look at me here and there and everywhere. Oh, why is it so hard, men and women, just to talk about Jesus? Jesus doesn't say to them, go get people saved. He says, no, just what you have seen and heard and experienced in your life, just tell people about that. Why do we not do that? Because men and women, we need more of the Spirit's power. Beg God for the Spirit's power to do this simple and fundamental imperative, which is why the church continues to exist on earth. Tell people about Jesus and live a life that validates what you're saying about Jesus. Here's the plan to be continued. This is God's story. It's his only story. And he's going to do it through his people, but he's not going to leave you alone. He's going to do it through the power of the Spirit. This is what Jesus experienced. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and he began teaching in their synagogues, was praised by all. Why did Jesus need the power of the Spirit? Because he needed personal sanctification? No, no, right? He's God in human flesh. He did not need the Spirit for personal sanctification. Why did Jesus need the Spirit of God poured out from the Father upon him? Because he also needed courage to fulfill his mission on earth. In fact, when he got right to that very moment of fulfilling it, he was afraid. He was afraid. So much so that sweat came down like drops of blood. The Son of God needed the Spirit of God to obey. How much more do we? How much more do we? I went back through yesterday and I tried to find every place that the Apostle Paul asked for something. In prayer. And I could only find one thing that Paul ever said, would you please pray for this? And it's this, pray that I would have opportunities to share the gospel. And when the opportunity comes, the door opens that I wouldn't be afraid. Men and women, if Jesus needed the spirit and Paul needed the spirit, then you need the spirit. And if you have never told people about what you have seen and heard and experienced in Jesus, then you desperately today need to say, God, pour out your spirit on me. Because that is your story. That's how your chapter should read. It's how my chapter should read. That's why the church exists. By the Spirit's power. Paul said, pray on my behalf. 
that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. May I not pull back. And when I think about the boldest of the bold in the history of the church, I think Paul and Paul said, you know what? I need you to pray that I will not be afraid. To be continued through God's people, through the Spirit's power. And how, man, how do we need the Spirit's power if it is to the very ends of the earth? Chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the very remotest parts of the earth. That's the extent of this commission. And Jesus was quoting, actually from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. It reads like this. God says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Who is this prophecy about? What's about Jesus? And now Jesus quotes from it and he says to the apostles, this is about you. In Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul quotes it again and he says, this is about me and Barnabas. And the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning, this is about you. Why were you raised up? What's well, too small a thing that you would keep salvation to yourself? Because salvation is meant to be shared and shared and shared and shared and shared. That's too small a thing. I've raised you up so that you'd be a light to the nations, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family, to your community, to the campus, and Christians to the world. That is why God has raised us up. Now, again, I, I promise you that the apostles didn't get it. Right? Jesus gives them, in a sense, a strategy, an outline. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. This really actually serves as an outline for the whole book. It's a geographic outline that the gospel needs to explode this direction. But the apostles did not get it. Probably what they were hearing was, we need to go take the gospel to all of the Jews that are scattered, the diaspora. But we know they didn't understand, no, take it to non-Jews, Gentiles, because they resisted and they resisted and they resisted. And part of our study will be the study of Peter in chapter 10 saying, no, Lord, (laughs) no, seriously? And discovering no Gentiles are brought in on equal footing because that is the story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, God begins this redemptive program through Israel to the nations. Not for Israel, but through Israel to the nations. He says, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in you. All ethne, all tribes, all tongues. We go to the other bookend in Revelation and there are men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They're bowing before the throne of God and saying, worthy are you. Worthy are you and only you to receive worship beginning to end. This is the plan. So what do we do in between? We write chapters of our lives through the spirit of God empowering us, witnessing, declaring what we've experienced through Jesus Christ to all nations. That's normal. And I confess, I didn't didn't always get this. This light began to dawn in my mind when I was in college. And this morning, honestly, I was was so excited about this morning because I was thinking about students, you coming back. My life was changed when I was in college. And maybe the biggest change was when I finally got it. We are here to take the gospel to the nations. I mean, I'd been raised in the church, so I understood missions and missionaries and 
understood that some people are kind of into that, right? Missions is a program of the church, and some people like to give money to missionaries, and some people like potlucks, and they like weird food and don't know what's in that. What's in the bottom of that? They enjoy that. No, we call it fellowship. That's what they like. They get into that, and they even like to write letters to these people who are in far-off places and hear stories about, oh, man, but some people are into that, and some people in church aren't. And then it dawned on me, finally, students when I was your age, that no, missions isn't a little program in the church. The church is on mission. We're here for mission. Mission, that's what we do. We're here for a purpose, a reason, and it is so easy for us to lose our way. I will also confess that there were periods in my life when I lost my way, when I just didn't get it. I want to give you one illustration, visual illustration of this. Junior high. Go ahead, you can laugh. I I put it up there because I knew you would enjoy laughing. Uh, When I was in junior high, my mission was my hair. Right? (laughs) I mean, I, I I loved hockey, but really my mission was my hair. I got up early every day before school because I needed extra time for my hair. That's called feathering. I had to, you know. I have not used a blow dryer in 20 years, but man, every morning, I'm blow drying my hair. My mission was my hair because how my hair turned out on any given day affected my status in life. And that was my mission. My mission was my hair. Now I say that and I poke my little fun at myself here because metaphorically speaking, some of you are still worried about your hair. Okay. Some of you are still worried about things that frankly just won't last. They don't matter for eternity, but your life is completely wrapped up in those things. We are not here to experience what is described in our country as the American dream. That's not why we're here. Bigger, better house, bigger, better job, higher salary, retirement fund, cars, boats, trips. That's, that is not why we're here. Are all those things good? Sure, they can be in the right context. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but that's not why we're here, and that's not why we exist. That is feathering your hair, men and women, and it's a waste of time. Doesn't last for eternity. Doesn't even last about 20 years. <laughs> it's gone like a vapor. Where'd it go? Down the drain. It's not why we're here. We're here to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And it's not a geographic issue. It's a people issue. Because God is into people. And he says to his people, I want you to also be into people. Because that's what matters. To the ends of the earth. To the very ends of the earth. And we can lose our way, but church, sometimes we have a moment when we can come back to a text like this and God can recenter us Say, this is what my life is about, right? Until my life ends, or, as he says in verses 9 through 11, until Jesus returns. Read with me these last three verses of this section. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. A cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky, this Jesus who was taken up from heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The angels come up and the apostles are just standing around. They're not doing anything. Last year I coached uh, seventh grade basketball and I would take a group of 
of my players and I would get them going on a drill and say, do the drill. And I'd walk away. I'd take another group of players and say, okay, you do the drill. Here's the drill. Take the third group and go, do the drill. I go back to check on the first group. And you know what the first group is doing? <laughs> what are you doing? You go, nothing. You go, why aren't you doing the drill? What drill? <laughs> Seventh grade basketball. Awesome. It's awesome. Jesus goes up into the heaven, and what are the apostles doing? <laughs> Angel comes, what, what are you doing? What do you mean? <laughs> Aren't you doing the drill? What drill? Well, Jesus gave you a couple things to do, didn't he? Didn't he tell you two things to do? What were they? First he said, wait. Jesus said, wait. Go, wait, wow, that sounds really passive. Well, it's not passive. He said, wait for the power of the Spirit. Waiting biblically is always a very uh, active, aggressive activity. Wait on the Lord. Literally in Hebrew, the idea is cling to the Lord. And he says, I want you to cling to the Lord and say, God, send your spirit. God, send your spirit. God, send your spirit. God, send your spirit. Please send your spirit. God, send your spirit. We need your spirit. We're afraid. We don't even know what to do. Show us what to do. Give us the strength to do it. God, send your spirit. Your church needs the fresh anointing and power of your spirit to do what we're called to do. God, send your spirit. That's what it means to wait, church. In your commandment from God's spirit this week is wait on the spirit. Ask God's spirit, beg God's spirit to come and give you fresh power and strength to do what God has called you to do in this life. And then get up and witness. Yes, with your life, also with your words. Ask for doors to be open as the apostle Paul did and then step through them with boldness. Will you have all of the right words and all of the perfect answers? Know just what to say in every moment. Absolutely not. You will not. Who cares? Go. All right, go. Because this is why the church exists. This is, men and women, this is God's story and it's your story. And he's wanting to write you into this story every single day. And he's provided you with his spirit to empower you to do what he called you to do. And this is the most exciting and invigorating life that you could possibly experience because it's what you were made for. It's what you were made for. Found a wonderful quote from A.T. Pearson this week. He wrote this in 1895. Relevant today. Church of Christ, he says, the records of these acts of the Holy Spirit have never reached completeness. This is the one book which has no proper close because it waits for new chapters to be added so fast and so far as the people of God shall reinstate the blessed Spirit in his holy seat of control in each of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we wait for you. We confess that we become disoriented and disappointed. We become confused and fearful people. And it is only through the direction and the power that your spirit supplies that we can know what to do and how to do it. And so I pray, Father, that we would once again humble ourselves before you, that we would not assume that all of our lives are in line with your story. But we would let your spirit take control and write us in to what you are doing. Father, I pray that you would honor and glorify yourself through this church this week, this year. I pray, Father, that we would reach the end of this year and we would look back and we'd say, wow, what, what a year. 
What a year of the manifestation of the power of God's spirit in us and through us. All for your kingdom's glory. In Christ's name, amen. One quick practical application. If you don't know how to speak the words of the gospel, uh, right after this service, 11 o'clock in the fireside room, Brian and Aaron White are going to be teaching a course on how to share your faith. They're going to be doing it for two weeks. This week, talking about the gospel, how to share the gospel. Next week, how to do it through your story, your testimony. So 11 o'clock, fireside room. God bless you. Let's see what the Spirit does just this week. See you next week.